The evolving Australia-China relationship, fuel security in Australia, and coercive diplomacy. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss Australia's fuel security. It's beyond embarrassing that the Americans at the US-Australia ministerial meeting see our fuel security as sufficiently poor that they're willing to spend US money on a commercial fuel storage facility in Australia. And the CCP's coercive diplomacy tactics. Australia was top of the list of countries that had been targeted by the CCP. In terms of regions, Europe did rank more highly, but in terms of individual countries, we faced 17 individual cases, which is quite a lot. (laughs) But first, Anastasia Kapetis, Brendan Nicholson and Jack Norton discuss the Australia-China relationship and what Australia wants from China. Last week, the Chinese embassy was invited to send a speaker to the National Press Club to um, give the Chinese government's view of events in Australia and Australia's approach to a a range of issues. Uh, They sent out the number two person. And Jack, you covered it. What were your impressions? It was certainly an interesting event. And the Deputy Ambassador Wang Xinin is quite an eloquent and uh, engaging speaker to listen to, shall we say. So it was, a, it was a good event, a good little piece of theatre for the press club, I think. Um, but the substance of his address was interesting as well. And it was conciliatory in parts, talked about getting the relationship back on track, the areas where trade has grown and flourished so well in the last 20 years. The big takeaway for me, and that was what most of the news bulletins that night sort of ran with as well was the quoting of the assassination of Julius Caesar and Etu Brute, the ambassador's little little nudge, which was completely unprovoked uh, or unprompted, I should say. Uh, he was answering a question about barley and subsidies and anti-dumping trade-based, and he went into about, I think it was ended up being seven minutes worth of monologue on how hurt China had been by Australia's call for the inquiry into COVID-19. That was my key takeaway from that. But as we know, things have moved on quite a lot just this week. So how have things moved on, Jack? Well, more trade friction, shall we say. We've gone from barley and wine to more barley and wine. There was in the announcement of an investigation into supposed subsidies for Australian winemakers after the prior announcement of an investigation into uh, potential dumping by Australian winemakers into China. And the subsequent thing on barley after the imposition of tariffs has been a WA co-op uh, has had a claim of pests in its exports to China levelled at it, which the Perth US Asia Centre was saying is potentially a sign of more things to come that could hit other agricultural sectors because it's very, very difficult to prove. Things like anti-dumping and subsidy investigations you can take to the World Trade Organization and dispute. If uh, an importer says your shipment has arrived and it has weevils in it, it then gets destroyed and there's not really any evidence one way or another that you can prove if it did or didn't have pests. So there are concerns already that this could easily extend and quickly to other agricultural sectors and it's potentially a better avenue for China to use for potential coercion. So basically we can see all of our agricultural exports to China 
come under under risk of this kind of behaviour from China in the future? Or do you think there's an end point here? China will have had, made its point and then move on. This is something we, d- we discussed yesterday and I think you put it fairly eloquently. What could the Deputy Ambassador have actually said at the press club that would have helped to repair relations? And I'm not very imaginative, so I just sort of, sort of said... <laughs> uh, the level of trust is so low that I don't think there's anything he could have actually said necessarily that would have got things back on track. But perhaps if he'd said some conciliatory things and then said, oh, by the way, we're actually ending the anti-dumping investigation and we're going to take the tariffs off of Bali, for example. Uh, but I think you maybe had some different thoughts. Look, I don't know. It, I, I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Um Number one, to think, well, what could the Chinese say realistically without losing face? Um, but that would still signal a kind of a change of mood in Beijing on Australia. But also, what is Australia's like wish list? I mean, what would really fundamentally reset um, you know, our relations with, with China? Uh, Brendan, do you have any thoughts on, on where to next? Because as far as I can tell, it's, it can't improve from here, at least not in the short term. Well, look, one of the speakers at, um, at ASPE's online conference series the other day made the comment that um, don't be too concerned about China. You know, they, they don't buy your iron ore because they like your face. You know, they buy your iron ore because it's a, it comes at a good price, it's a reliable service, and, and they, they get good quality ore. Now, it is a relationship. I don't think we should become too scared about it. Our economy is in large part structured around exports to China, but they need us just as much as we need them in, uh, in terms of what they're getting. I don't know that we've reached the point where we can say, okay, well, if you don't want our barley, you won't get our iron ore either. It's, it's, it's not practical at this stage, but I do think we should keep our nerve. We should help the industries that are actually being targeted by China but uh, we should try and ride it out and we should diversify. And uh, diversification is a big lesson that the whole region and actually the whole world has learned out of the COVID crisis. Well, it looks like China's learning has learned that lesson as well. There's reports like this week as well that the um, projected development of, of the biggest iron ore deposit in the world in West Africa uh, is going ahead of pace and Rio Tinto is, is joining forces with, um, with China to develop that uh, huge, huge deposit. Now, who knows what the kinds of kind of sovereign risk problems um, that that deposit has and how long it will take to come online. But the clear implication here is that uh, China's also looking to diversify away from its dependencies. But that's something that countries like Australia have got to be aware of, obviously. Again, it's a matter of the service that we can provide and reliability. We can probably match most countries in the world in terms of reliability. We can we probably pay a, suffer a penalty in terms of cost. We're probably more expensive than some, though the efficiencies have made us probably kept us in the market. In places like Africa, who actually knows how reliable things can be, uh, the big danger there is corruption and people being paid off to keep the exports flowing, even if um, environmental standards are, are lower. Uh, look, there's there's clearly danger in all of this for Australia, but there are other places that Australia can can sell its raw materials to. There's one development I neglected to mention earlier, 
that also happened or that news of which uh, came out since the Deputy Ambassador's speech last week and that was the detention in Beijing of the Australian journalist Cheng Lei, who's a CGTN, so Chinese state television uh, news anchor. She was detained on the 14th of August by all accounts for reasons unknown uh, at this point. She's being held in what they call residential detention, which is not jail per se, but it might be a dodgy hotel on the outskirts of town where she can be held for up to six months without charge and without necessarily having access to a lawyer. Apparently there has been a video link consular visit, so to speak, uh, but we have very, very little detail on that so far. Obviously there's been denial in Beijing that it's connected or has anything to do with this, the very, very frosty relations between our two countries at the moment, but it's certainly taken together with all these other things. Looks looks like hostage diplomacy. Well, quite possibly, and there is also another Australian uh, detained still who's been detained for almost two, more than two years now, I think. Brendan, you've been a journalist in some fairly dangerous places overseas. Uh, do you think this is something that Australian journalists in China are going to have to take into account in future? And what can you do to prevent against it? Nothing really, right? Look, there's not a lot you can do. If you actually want to do your job in a professional fashion, this, is what, this has become a threat. Now, I think that it's become much tougher for journalists in countries such as China and Iran. We often, even though we might have been in dangerous situations when I worked in Africa and, and elsewhere, generally people did not target journalists. And that was like you might get threatened by the authorities for, for breaching censorship rules or whatever. But generally you would not be taken hostage in the fashion that people are being taken now in a, in a very sinister way by authorities such as the Chinese who have complete control over somebody's livelihoods. And they can threaten families, they can refuse to let somebody go, and it's much the same as your weevils and a load of barley or whatever it might be. Someone gets locked up and there's no transparency, so no way to prove whether there were weevils in the real sense or figuratively in the case. Anastasia, in terms of this particular case, do you think it's, and I, I struggle with, with this, is it more or less productive in terms of China achieving its goals by denying there's any connection when everyone knows there's a connection and the response from our government has to go along the same lines because we don't want to create any more angst in the situation or potentially make it worse, would Beijing be better off saying, yes, we're holding this person until you do this? Uh, well, I think the former. Absolutely. And it chimes in with really um, Beijing's behaviour in terms of the South China Sea. So what that's all about is, is chipping off small slices of your strategic goal. Salami slicing. Salami tactics. slicing, exactly right. But not pushing things forward so much that um, a country has no option but to, you know, press a, press a kind of a nuclear button diplomatically. So this is, deniability has it serves the same purpose. Russia does this too. Um, so everybody knows or at least everybody thinks, thinks they know that there's a connection. Just that suggestion is enough to press home a, a point that, you know, this country is to be feared, this, be very wary about this country, this country will go to the next level. But the de deniability allows them, uh, you know, essentially to keep that sort of scary ambiguity going. But going back to the um, Deputy Ambassador, the fact that he's sent out to talk in the National Press Club does indicate that China is conscious of the impact its actions are having around the world. 
and uh, I suppose it's for us to to watch closely and measure uh, whether China is actually concerned about this and likely to soften its approach or back off or stop doing these things, um, or whether it's going to to march on relentlessly and and carry on with a pattern of behaviour that the world finds completely unacceptable. And do we think that Australia should read too much into the analysis that we're being made an example of? We've stuck our heads above the parapet and we're being made to know about it and that maybe end up being to the detriment of the trade relationship for Beijing, but it's worth it in terms of that cost for the fact we're being made an example of and other countries will take heed of that. China, I think, sees Australia as a, as a softer option to deal with clearly than countries like the United States. And, and we are, in its region, we're unusual in that we're basically a European country along with New Zealand. And in in it's close, much more closely tied to, to Asia geographically than, than to our European roots. But, the, but China is getting a lot of pushback now from Europe, from countries like Germany that are raising concerns about, about China's approach to, to Europe generally and, and about Chinese misbehaviour at home amongst its own people. I think that gradually the, the weight of concern in the world possibly caused the Chinese to modify their behaviour. So I think we should stick to our guns. Yeah, I think that the twin issues of COVID and Xinjiang um, have really, really damaged you know, the Chinese story over the last 18 months, uh, especially. And maybe Hong Kong as well. And Hong Kong, of course, yeah, fits into that. And I think, you know, part of the, you know, the Hong Kong issue was about Hong Kongers fears about the kinds of political technologies that China is trying in Xinjiang, um, you know, technologies for surveillance, etc. And that has had a knock-on effect to Taiwan as well, strengthening resolve, I think, there. So um, as far as for China, I think it's in danger of losing that longer game. We wait and see. We will. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Anastasia. Now... Michael Shoebridge and John Coyne consider the outcomes from Osmin around fuel security and potential solutions to Australia's fuel storage issues. Well, Dr Coyne, great to have a chance to talk to you about fuel security and what came out of the Australia-US ministerial meeting, and then a little bit about what the future holds with government direction and policy. So uh, there seemed to be some good news out of the recent mask ministers meeting in Washington around fuel security. Uh, at least it was on the agenda and there was a decision that the Americans were going to invest in a commercial fuel storage facility in the north of Australia. Was that the commercial option that the Australian consortium had put together or is it something else? No, look, this is something totally, totally different. So the consortium last year was the airport development group based with the uh, Northern Territory Airports Corporation. They were looking at quadrupling the amount of storage for jet fuel and then other liquid fuels in the Northern Territory. They'd raised the equity. Uh, they're in the process of, of starting to move that project forward. But their big challenge was one of commerciality. So who would pay for the facility? Who would pay more for their fuel? And that sort of fell... Their viewpoint was pushing for defence to do so. Defence felt that they shouldn't pay more for their fuel, so it just sort of fell over. Um, to your point about Osmin, I think that um, this is a fantastic result in Osmin for defence and defence in the short term and both 
US and Australia. Um, and I say that hopefully, we're, you know, it's still uncertain how, whether or not Australia will be able to access that, but we're assuming it will. Um, it's great news because it will mean that we will have more fuel in the Northern Territory stored, which will extend the length and duration intensity of air operations that can be conducted out of um, the northern yeah. of Australia. So instead of running short or running out of jet fuel during big uh, exercises that the Australian military has or it has with US partners, like Pitch Black, where we have come very close to running out up to now, that won't happen. But even more importantly, do you think there'll be enough storage to make a meaningful difference if Australia has to deploy its military during a conflict um, and fuel the military to fight during a conflict? Um, look, I think so, depending on the size of the facility. And I think this is, and again, on that intensity, the challenge we have, though, is the same challenge we have for the Northern Territory and RAF-based Tyndall, which is um, having lots of storage is one part of the problem. Um, its supply chains is the other. So the real issue then is is that can we resupply that? You know, it's not a bottomless pit. So, and we have an ever-decreasing number of facilities that can actually produce globally um, jet fuel. So in the case of our, our jet fuel comes from Singapore predominantly. So kind of, will we be able to get more jet fuel from Singapore in the event of ongoing military operations? But even before that, how will we get that fuel from Darwin to RAF-based Tyndall? Because the only way is road. Um, there's no pipelines, uh, there's no rail cutting, there's no rails, rolling stock to carry it. There's no spare capacity in terms of trucks just sitting there waiting just in case defence want to move Yes, so even this good news isn't enough because it hasn't fixed the broader issue around production of jet fuel or transport of jet fuel. So storage is good. But don't you think um, that it's beyond embarrassing that the Americans at the US-Australia ministerial meeting see our fuel security as sufficiently poor that they're willing to spend US money on a commercial fuel storage facility in Australia. And the other bit to me that is a really bad policy outcome is it gives companies and consortia like the uh, one that had an Australian proposal exactly the wrong message. It says, if you come up with a credible proposal that would meet Australia's national needs, the Australian government won't invest in it. You should have worked with Americans because the American government will. Yeah, look, Michael, I think, you know, like I, I sort of say, well, it's ironic, but I have had said to a couple of media outlets that's the case. I think also it sends a really uncomfortable message about the US government's trust in our ability to fix the problem. You know, they're investing their treasure in fixing a problem that is ironically, well, which is ours. So there's obviously some, at least somewhere in DC right now inside the Beltway, someone saying the Australians can't fix this, so we need to go fix it ourselves with our actual treasure. But, but we actually had a commercial consortium with a solution and uh, around the same price, no doubt, that the Americans are willing to fund. So I wonder if the next opportunity to really give effect to the policy intent, and the policy intent is that Australia has more fuel security in times of crisis to meet our national needs. This is coming off the back of the pandemic where we know essential items, whether it's masks, ventilators or energy, we need to have confidence we can meet our national needs. And fuel is right in the middle of that. So that, that seems to me the 
to be the public expectation and the government purpose. Uh, I'm looking at the, the next step where we could see a better outcome than the one we saw out of Osmet. And is that this uh, request for information that Angus Taylor has put out? Um, look, I think it is. I think, and to your point, COVID-19 um, has been a tragedy in Australia and globally. But there are some positive impacts in terms of policy. I think that there's a real chance, and this is something across all the authors in our After COVID volume sort of said, both the first volume that's published now and in the drafts you've got for the second volume, which are there's a sense of a need to think bigger, think nationally. Now, this RFI is a good example of that. So we're looking for a private sector solution to storing fuel in our nation um, and liquid fuels. So the challenge we will have is which one do we choose? So from from industry looking at it going, let's reply, should we reply to this and say the economic engineering solution, which is a single facility located somewhere next to a port and, you know, that's a, that's a minimum price option? Or do we go for the solution that most likely fits a balance between national security and economics, which is, you know, a dispersed model, four or five different locations? But we'll have to pay a lot more money for that. And it comes back to that. Mm. Um, and this is one of those challenges, certainly here in Canberra, at a time in a, in a recession and a global recession, who will pay for the additional mm. storage? But if you look at the positive agenda that the Prime Minister is putting out with his Aspen um, Colorado security speech, he was saying it's not a choice about security or economics. Uh, you have yep. one or you have the other. He was saying in the post-COVID world, you have to get your security and your economic benefits in the same decisions and think about them as twin attributes. You want both. So um, the, the message I think that he's sending to the industry is, I don't want one big, cheap um, storage facility that's a single point of failure and vulnerability. Fuel security means a dispersed approach to fuel holdings. That's what the Americans are doing. They're dispersing their fuel holdings by investing in some in Australia. Well, that's what we need to do nationally. But unless that message goes to industry, you're right, they'll default to the least cost commercial decision and it'll be one big tank somewhere. That's not what the need is. So this is a time to be creative and say, rebuilding Australia's economy in a more secure way uh, must involve dispersed fuel supplies and must have government co-investment, like the Americans taught us at, at Austin. Look, and I think you're right. I think this is one of the first points of where the rubber hits the road with that policy around the integration of security and um, and economics. And I think this is it's an ex from that point of view, it's an exciting time for for strategists because it's a total mindset change around. Um, all the sorts of things, you know, this this extends. So this is the first point to a longer point, which you and I have talked about. So, for instance, you know, the need to be able to, um, and when I say long point, in a matter of a couple of years, the need to be able to produce missiles in Australia, those sorts of mm. manufacturing capabilities. Now, we've got to get that right, and that, that getting that right is a combination of the private sector and the public sector and the sorts of things that are, you know, the big nation-building thoughts. Mm. Um, but, but again, mums exactly, and dads don't want to pay more at the fuel. Well, <laughs> however, this is exactly the right time for this kind of government stimulus to this critical investment because government can borrow at historically low rates and the kind of returns that commercial operators can get around the world now are historically low unless you're in the big tech world. So there'll be stable commercial returns and the government money 
can be borrowed at historically low rates. So this is the perfect conditions for this kind of investment. Absolutely. And again, though, that, that, again, that change. So, you know, I'm very familiar with my Northern Australia program looking at the Northern Australian Investment Facility, um, which is a debt-based approach to investment. Nation building in this country through mechanisms like NAIF work really well in the southern states of Australia building roads and infrastructure. Uh, they have an underlying um, user-pays approach and one about sorting out and supporting you know, big parts of the population. They give a, a sugar hit, an economic sugar hit of, of jobs, etc. The real issue, though, is, is in building from here requires a different approach. And I think this is in the stimulus package. We've seen the 15 infrastructure investments across Australia. We can do more and better. and We can focus that down much better because this will create jobs. It'll give the same sugar hit, building great big facilities for storage. So you'll get that economic sugar hit, but it'll have long-term impacts as well. And I think this is a Again, you know, you and I have talked about $1.3 trillion uh, and growing superannuation funds in this country. Um, there's a lot to be said for encouraging that equity to be returned into, and mm. certainly parts of it, back into our economy. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much out of time, John. But to me, one of the big challenges is uh, for departments and agencies to catch up with the government's intent and to catch up with the opportunity that the pandemic provides with these historically low borrowing rates. Because I think the, the government appetite to use things like fuel security as part of our economic rebuilding is much greater than agencies that are still stuck in the pre-COVID economic thinking of least cost of production. So uh, the response to the RFI and the government's guidance to industry about what they actually want to me, is is the next opportunity. Absolutely. And I think then in rounding that out, though, there's, there needs to be a real paradigm shift in our public service thinking in, this t in Canberra and beyond and a real engagement with um, commerciality and national security. And and in in a strange way, we'll be catching up with our core regional strategic partners, whether it's the US or Japan, because Darwin is a case study in Japan and America realising the strategic value of that location for energy and Australia not realising it. So uh, I'm hopeful that that's going to change and I'm hopeful that we'll see further progress on real fuel security. So thanks very much thanks. for the chance to talk, John. Finally, I sat down with research intern Tracy Beatty and Amelia Curry to have a chat about their recent report on the Chinese Communist Party's coercive diplomacy. Tracy and Amelia, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Olivia. Now, along with Burgess Hansen, your co-authors of the new report, The Chinese Communist Party's Coercive Diplomacy, um, can you give our listeners a brief overview of the report and tell us a bit about how China is using coercive diplomacy? The CCP is increasingly using coercive diplomacy against foreign governments, companies and regions in order to uphold what it calls its core national interests. And in our report, we've categorised the methods of coercive diplomacy into eight different categories. These include arbitrary detention and execution, restrictions on official travel, tourism restrictions, investment restrictions, trade restrictions, popular boycotts, pressure on specific companies, and lastly, we have state-issued threats. That's really interesting. And for this report... You, you know, there's kind of questions of you know, why China? China's obviously not the only country using coercive diplomacy. So why did you choose to focus on China for this project? Absolutely. So coercive diplomacy is quite an established practice 
we see many, many countries around the world, especially those that are of great power status, use coercive diplomacy in order to protect its national interests and play to its strengths. For example, the US recently has threatened its partners and allies in not sharing intelligence if these countries use Huawei equipment for their telecommunications network. However, the reason why our report focused on the CCP's course of diplomacy in particular is because of its uniqueness. A lot of different countries use cursive diplomacy from an official state capacity, whereas in the context of the CCP, they tend to rely a lot on plausible deniability, which means that there is way less oversight and accountability. And because of this, we need a whole different set of tools in order to counter and respond to such coercion. So Amelia, of the, these eight methods that Tracy mentioned earlier, can you tell me a little bit more about what were some of the most common methods used by China in this, this 10-year period? Yep. So in um, from 2010 to 2020, we uh, tracked cases noting a sharp escalation in 2018. The most common methods we found were state-issued threats with 34 cases tracked over that period. An example that comes to mind is even from just last week where the CCP commenced an investigation into Australian wine in retaliation for Australia's call for the COVID-19 inquiry. So the reason we believe there's such a high rate of state-issued threats is because they're by far the quickest and easiest tool available to the CCP that they can issue at any moment to, as at least the first step in changing a state's behaviour. And is it normal that that other steps would follow if the state-issued threats don't work? Sometimes no, because the time has passed and it's no longer necessary. Either the state's changed its behaviour or it was a one-off thing like a trip by the Dalai Lama, for example, is a common one. But where it's an ongoing issue and China, or at least both parties actually, hold that issue in quite high political esteem, then there tends to follow with more and more issues. We chose the in-depth case studies, which were Norway, South Korea, Canada and Australia for those reasons, in that it starts with a state-issued threat and then follows on with trade restrictions, tourism restrictions and pretty much the full breadth of um, the methods of coercive diplomacy that we examined those those countries faced. Now, of those case studies, I'd like to kind of touch a bit more on Australia and our experience of coercive diplomacy. I mean, recently we've had the beef and barley tariffs in response to asking for an investigation into an international pandemic. Don't Um, forget wine. Don't forget (laughs) wine, of course. Um, But how many other instances are there of coercive diplomacy towards Australia and you know as a middle power how how can we best respond? Australia was top of the list of countries that had been targeted by the CCP. In terms of regions Europe did rank more highly but in terms of individual countries we faced 17 individual cases which is quite a lot. <laughs> and I guess want- I guess part of the problem is as well is that of the five wise countries we're the most economically reliant on China. We are so economically intertwined. How how can we counter this when we're still so reliant economically? Absolutely. So with Australia we have seen some early signs of a counter coercion strategy against the CCP. So the Australian government has started to call out the CCP for using such coercive measures and we're also seeing Australia collaborating with other Five Eyes countries to issue a joint statement against the CCP for its coercion. In terms of 
economic reliance and businesses, there definitely needs to be more engagement between government and companies in order to factor in the heightened risk of doing business with China. But most importantly, at a larger global scale, there has to be coordinated international pushback against the CCP for it to be most effective. And that that's actually what I wanted to ask you. It's it's clearly a shared experience. You know, you, you've tracked case studies of your, your four case studies of Norway, South Korea, Australia and Canada. You know, there's clear patterns that we're all experiencing and Australia is clearly not alone. You know, Australia and Canada both have citizens in arbitrary detention in China, including journalist Cheng Lei, who has been detained since the 14th of August. How can countries work together to counter this as a group? So at the moment, the biggest problem is that all these countries that have faced the CCP's coercion are responding bilaterally and there hasn't been much coordinated action at all. From our report, it just shows that how prominent this coercive diplomacy is and there has to be more both minilateral and multilateral arrangements where these countries who have shared experiences of being coerced by the CCP group together, push back, address with countermeasures, just stand ground against the CCP. On a final note, I'd love to hear from you, Tracy, about how the research has been received and um, maybe an update on, on if there's anything happening in this space since. Well, our report has been quite well received so far, which is really great to see. So we have the Australian Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham. He's quoted our report and has acknowledged the increase in coercive diplomacy by the CCP against Australia. We've also seen it reach all the way to EU Parliament and a lot of other countries around the world that have been affected, such as New Zealand, India, the UK, Canada, lots of different countries. And Amelia has been keeping track of some developments that have been happening recently since the launch? It's a crazy coincidence that in the week that we released this report, three different potential cases of coercive diplomacy arose in Australia alone. So um, the Raiders lost their sponsorship from Huawei, as you would have heard, the wine subsidies, that investigation got launched by the CCP and news broke that Chang Li had been detained since the 14th of August. So it's clearly a space to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Tracy and Amelia, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. (laughs) That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.